Hebrews chapter 3. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3 with me this evening? Some months ago, we had the opportunity to study the beginning of chapter 3 as we're exhorted by the writer of Hebrews to consider Jesus as in Christ we have the resources necessary to persevere in our faith. At the end of the section of scripture that we looked at in verses 1 through 6, there's a transitional statement at the end of verse number 6, which we will consider and then carry that thought through the end of the chapter in Hebrews chapter number 3. But before we read that passage and begin to consider what the Lord would have for us, I want to invite you to imagine to yourself a gifted sculptor with a great block of marble. In his hands, he has a chisel and hammer, and with care, vision, and immense talent, he chips away at the marble until an exquisite statue is revealed. People come from far and wide to gaze at the statue and reflect on its beauty. The artist who sculpted it is hailed as a genius. His eye for detail, his absolute control over the tools of his trade, and his flawless execution are praised as the greatest ever seen by man. In the case of the sculptor, he had a purpose and a plan in his mind before he ever began to strike at the marble with his tools. And he determined to follow through on that plan by selecting his tools and sculpting the marble. His final goal was to create a work of beauty. And he determined that he would accomplish all this by the means of the tools that he chose, the hammer and chisel. Now, the Christian life is very similar to this illustration. God is the great sculptor of our salvation. With infinite power, skill, vision, beauty, and glory. Within a sinful fallen world, this great artist, by his own predetermined design, planned a thing of great beauty at which all of the universe would marvel. In fact, the book of Ephesians in chapter 3 tells us that myriads and myriads of ten thousands would marvel at what he was doing. That angels would gaze with fascination and curiosity at this thing that God was crafting by his great artistry and skill. The book of Revelation tells us of an eternity of praise given to this artist for the work that he designed and accomplished. Amazingly, though, the material out of which he would craft this beautiful exposition of his skill would be the ugly, brittle, dirty, rebellious souls of human beings. These same human beings, even though they themselves had been the pinnacle of God's artistic glory by bearing his own image, they had actually turned their noses up at his supreme artistry. In the original creation that God describes for us in Genesis 1 and 2, 
And they chose instead in Genesis 3 to scribble their own pitiful designs in rebellion against the glory of their maker. But the sovereign God, in boundless mercy and love, would take these same ruined souls and remake them into stunning and restored trophies of his grace. The same phrase that we heard in our hymn of the month But in this process of God remaking these defaced souls, there would be instruments that God would use to craft the final product of salvation. And just as the sculptor takes hammer and chisel to craft his statue, so God would use certain instruments out of which he would make his great work, the salvation of humanity. These instrumental causes would be the hammer of his word pushing along the chisel of human faith. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so we see the choice of God to use his word as the instrument that he will perfectly and successfully craft the salvation that he has designed. Romans 10.17 elaborates on this truth by telling us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So the word is the instrument which creates and sustains the very faith that God uses to craft in us the sculpture of salvation. God uses the hammer of his word to push along the chisel of human faith to create a final product of salvation of humanity. This is a faith that begins when we are converted and continues right on until we get to glory. Now, you and I know by experience that the faith of a believer is not a perfect faith, but it is a persistent faith. Philippians 1.6 tells us and promises us, the Apostle Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And friend, if you are in Christ Jesus this evening, joined to him by faith, God has promised explicitly in his word that he will maintain his firm hold on your faith and cause it to persevere until your salvation is finally accomplished and finished in glory. That is the picture of divine power that superintends and oversees our salvation from first to last. And in our passage this evening, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to go into a bit of detail describing the relationship between the hammer of God's word and the chisel of faith. Now, 
unlike a chisel, our faith is not a dead, lifeless stick of some metal, iron, or steel. Rather, our faith is really alive, it's vibrant, and it's willful. God commands you and me to actively trust in Christ with our own wills. But how does God ensure the outcome if he commands this? How does God accomplish the final product perfectly of salvation when he commands you and I to exercise our wills to have faith in Christ? He uses the means of his word to do this. Because in order for the chisel of faith to perfectly carve out salvation, the hammer of God's word must inerrantly strike it. And friends, when God uses his inspired word, it invariably ensures that the faith of God's children will endure to the very end. As believers, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is who we trust for our salvation. That's God's plan, and it's his work from first to last. But the means that God uses to grant us faith in his son is the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in our passage today, we're going to find out that one of the hammer strokes of the scriptures that works out our salvation through faith is the particular hammer stroke of warning. God regularly warns us in scripture of the spiritual danger of turning our faith to anything else besides Christ. And in our passage this evening, we have an excellent example of that. So now let's, let's read our passage of scripture together. We're going to start in verse number six. We're going to go all the way down through the rest of the chapter. And as we do, let's hear the warnings of scripture that God wants to use to strengthen our faith this evening. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse number six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Brothers and sisters, in this text, in the time we have this evening, I want you to see 
this key truth from our passage. Believers must carefully, continually set their faith in Christ for final salvation. Believers must continually and carefully set their faith in Christ for final salvation. I want to show you where I get those ideas and how the author defends that, that those are the author's ideas. The first point that I want us to consider is this. From verse number six, genuine faith must persevere. Genuine faith must persevere. Look at the final phrase of verse number six. It reads thus, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Here, the preacher tells us to hold fast. Now, this word can mean to possess or to contain. One commentator says that in Hebrews, the word is used to speak of keeping a tight grip on the Christian faith, keeping it from slipping away. And friends, this kind of a conditional statement is not unique to this one spot in Hebrews. At least four times the author of Hebrews exhorts believers not to fall away from believing in Christ. In verse 14 of our same passage this evening, the writer again gives the conditional statement, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The Apostle Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. These are conditional statements with tremendous consequences. A conditional statement is one in which the second part is fulfilled upon condition of the first part being true. Now, if the first part is fulfilled, then I know that the second part will also be fulfilled. And so the meaning of the conditional here is this. God wants us to know that only a faith which perseveres will finally enter glory. If we persevere, we will enter glory. Now let's see how the author of Hebrews defends that statement in verses 7 through 11. He's just taught us that genuine faith needs to persevere. And in verses 7 through 11, we'll see our second point. He's going to show us the inverse truth, which is that non-persevering faith will not enter glory. So look at what he says in verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, this is in the voice of God, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I want you to notice firstly the strength of authority that the writer appeals to. He quotes the Old Testament and then emphasizes the authority of the Old Testament by beginning his quotation with this, as the Holy Spirit says. Now friends, just as an aside, isn't this a wonderful reminder to us that when the scriptures speak to us, it's the very voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And it lays on us the responsibility to listen carefully and take very seriously everything that the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Now let me make a quick application. There are many in this room who have regular opportunities to preach and or teach the word of God. Whether it's teachers in a classroom 
Uh, those who have opportunities to preach on occasion or teach a Sunday school class or even something as simple as teaching your own children what the Bible says by reading God's word to them, praying with them, and explaining the meaning of scriptures, whatever the case would be, if you are ever in a position where you have the opportunity to teach and preach the word of God, let me just give you an exhortation and an encouragement that it would be a good habit for you whenever you read the passage of scripture from which you're teaching to preface it like this author did and remind your readers that this is the Holy Spirit speaking. So before you begin your message, say something like this. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says to us in this passage, and then read your passage. Just as a reminder before all of us hear the word of God, that this is indeed not just Paul or John or David speaking, although that's true, but that we are hearing for us today the very words of the Almighty God. We need those kinds of reminders that when the Bible speaks, we hear the Holy Spirit. And so the preacher does in our own passage of Scripture. But the writer quotes to us from Psalm 95, which rehearses the story of the children of Israel and their rebellion in the wilderness. And in this quotation of Psalm 95, we need to see two very sobering realities. And remember that the author is trying to show us that non-persevering faith does not enter glory. So here are the two sobering realities that the author gives us in this quote from Psalm 95. The first are the just consequences of unbelief. There are just consequences for unbelief. The Israelites started well in the sense that they actually followed God out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. However, the story of Israel from the Exodus on is the story of habitual pursuit of unbelief. And so God justly punished that generation. You remember from your own reading of the Old Testament, the cycle of disobedience on the part of the Israelites. The author's point is that if a generation of Israelites refused to believe God's promises regarding bread and water and land, how much more should we be very, very careful not to repeat their mistakes when the stakes for us are so much greater and higher? We have the infinitely greater promises of God regarding the salvation of our souls by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're not just talking about what kind of bread we're going to be able to eat in the wilderness. We're talking about eternal destinies. This is very similar to arguments that the author has made previously, where in chapter 2 he says, Therefore, if the message received by, uh, uh, delivered by angels was of great con- uh, consequence, how much more would be the message delivered by Christ himself? And so in the same way here, he argues from the lesser to the greater to say, listen, what Israel went through in the wilderness resulted in the decimation of an entire generation because they did not persevere in belief. Instead, they habitually pursued unbelief. Now, friends, for you and I, the stakes are much greater. Your Christian faith is not something you casually hold on to. It's something you tightly grasp because of how precious it is and because of how much is at stake in it. So the first warning we see, the first sobering reality from Psalm 95 is that there are just consequences of unbelief. 
We need to know what's at stake. But the second sobering reality from Psalm 95 as a whole is this, is that this warning is always needed. And we know this because the writer of the book of Hebrews doesn't quote the story of the Israelites. He quotes the psalm that rehearses the story of the Israelites. Now, why does he do that? One of the reasons in particular is because the psalmist in his day recognized that the warning to believe God's promises was still needed. And then the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes the psalmist to show that from generation to generation to generation to generation, faith in the promises of God is always a necessity for the people of God. You and I must always be working to guard our faith against doubt and unbelief precisely because the warning is always needed. The children of Israel could have done well to heed this warning, and the psalmist who wrote Psalm 95 knew it and preached it to his own generation. The writer of the book of Hebrews quoted it to preach it to his, and now here we are reading this preserved book of Scripture so that the warning would be just as relevant for us today as it was for each generation of God's people prior. That brings us to our third point, which is that genuine faith requires careful diligence. Let's look again at verses 12 to 18. Genuine faith requires careful diligence. The writer of the book of Hebrews then applies the Old Testament scriptures he's just quoted. He says, on that basis, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, he appeals again to Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was not it all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now friends, in these verses, the writer here tells us that genuine faith requires careful diligence. There are three reasons he gives to us why it is the case that genuine faith requires diligence. The three reasons why we must take diligent watch over our faith is one, because unbelief is a true danger. Friends, in light of the Old Testament scriptures, the writer here commands us directly to take care. Sin poses a true and real danger to the faith of a believer. Satan assaults us with trials in an attempt to get us to turn our back on our faith in Christ. And many of you know this to be true by experience. That the trials in your life have actually brought you to decision moments about your faith. We have to keep diligent watch over our faith because unbelief is a true danger. Also, we must keep diligent watch over our faith because sin is deceitful. Sin is like a drug that deadens our faith while giving us momentary highs. 
The world works to make us trust what we can see and be ashamed of trusting Christ instead of being broken over our sin and trusting the God that we can't see. Be diligent over your faith because sin is deceitful. It will always present itself as the good and the immediate and the lasting rather than what it is, the destructive. But friends, we also need to keep diligent watch over our faith because many have failed to persevere in the past. In verses 15 to 18, the writer returns again to the example of the Israelites And he wants to impress upon us once again the point that the Israelites really rejected the promises of God. And they were really punished for them. So keep careful watch over your faith because many have failed to persevere. I tell the seniors in both youth group and in our Christian school that there's coming a time when the decision will be quite clear. Because for all of the upperclassmen, They know kids who were older than them when they were in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade who graduated ahead of them and at this time no longer claim to be believers. And each one of you knows people like that as well. People from your Christian school. People that for decades claim to know and love God and at this time bear no visible evidence of the fruits of regeneration. Keep diligent watch over your faith. But I want us to see one last point for us this evening, and it's this. Perseverance occurs through God's ordained means. Because, friends, at this point, it's possible that you're wondering whether or not this text implies that a person can lose their salvation. Or if I secretly am a free will Baptist and believe that you all are in grave danger of losing what God has promised to you. Now, friends, I emphatically believe that true children of God can never lose their salvation. God's word is absolutely clear on this point, and that's exactly why I began my message this evening with a review of the doctrine of perseverance. But some people might then say, well, if the salvation of God is guaranteed, then why put these warnings in here? Doesn't it rob this passage of really saying anything of significance if it's a guaranteed thing and there's nothing anybody can do about it? If once saved, always saved, then there's no really need for warning because there's nothing, literally nothing I can do to lose my salvation. However, both complete passivity regarding your salvation and a constant battle to hold on to it on your own or in your own strength are both viewpoints that miss the mark of this passage of Scripture. Because, you see, all of God's children will persevere until the end, and this passage tells us how they will persevere. There are two ways that God's children will finally persevere in their faith. And the first is believing and obeying the Scriptures. God has ordained that the warnings of these passages and the exhortations to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus be the primary way that he keeps us in the faith. How is it that God ensures the salvation of his people through their persevering faith? By warning us in his word of the consequences of unbelief. That is the very method that God uses to keep you away from the cliff that would result in the destruction of your own soul. How do the scriptures play into our perseverance? 
how does the Bible work that way? How does it accomplish the perseverance of my faith? I'm going to give you two illustrations to kind of help make this point. The first illustration is from uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, There's an episode where Christian is on his way to the beautiful palace. That's not the same thing as the celestial city. Celestial city is the final destination. Beautiful palace is a waypoint, kind of a a stop for travelers on the way. He gets advice from the porter and uh, several other uh, residents of the house. However, on his way to the beautiful palace, Christian has been warned by two unfaithful pilgrims named Timorous and Mistrust. And these two pilgrims basically come up to Christian and say, it's not worth going any further in your journey because of the fierce lions in front of the beautiful palace that will devour anyone who crosses their path. Now Christian, nonetheless, presses on. And the story goes like this. Bunyan pens it this way. Behold, there was a very stately palace before him, the name of which was Beautiful, and it stood by the highway side. So I saw in my dream that he, Christian, made haste and went forward that if possible he might get lodging there. Now before he had gone far, he entered into a very narrow passage, which was about a furlong off of the porter's lodge. And looking very narrowly before him as he went, he espied two lions on the way. Now, thought he, I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous were driven back by. Now the lions were chained, but Christian saw not the chains. Then Christian was afraid. And thought also himself to go back after Timorous and uh, mistrust. For he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name was Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt, as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy faith so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are placed there for trial of faith, where it is, and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come to thee. Then I saw that he went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter, he heard them roar, but they did him no harm. In this passage from Pilgrim's Progress, we have a beautiful illustration of both the real dangers to faith as well as the function that God's word plays in preserving us from them. You see, the lions were not a fake danger, not a hypothetical danger, but a real danger. And the only way to avoid the danger was to stay on the path with his eyes fixed firmly ahead. And he knew to do this because of the porter's words to him that both encouraged him that the lions would never reach him because of their chains and warned him of the danger of leaving the path. God's word does as much for us. It encourages us with the safety of our passage to glory, but also warns us from straying from this path of faith. God has ordained that such means will always keep his children faithful. His word cannot fail to keep his children faithful to the end. Let me give one more illustration of this concept. When I was in high school, my parents were planning an anniversary trip. It was kind of a bigger trip. I think it was probably some sort of milestone anniversary. And my parents were going to uh, leave my siblings and I at home by ourselves for like a week. 
And that was a big deal. Because, you know, they'd left us at home. We were all a little bit older. I was probably 16 or 17 at the time. And I'm the oldest of five, going all the way down to my sister London. Uh, she was probably somewhere between 10 and 12. Um, uh, at that time, though, we didn't know that they were planning this anniversary trip. And in that stage of life, I was 16 or 17, but I was dragging my feet on getting my driver's license. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, we were like super deep into sports. We were playing baseball all the time. And our baseball fields and practices were not like short distances away. It wasn't like a five minute drive up the road around the corner to the park. It was like 25, 35, 40 minutes to get to baseball games and practices and tournaments. And I knew that if I had my license free and clear, I'd be taking everybody to practice all the time. And so I was, I was like, you know what, I'm confident I'm going to get my license at some point, but I'm not in a huge hurry to get it done now. And the other reason is that, if you know my family, like, there was no car for me, you know, it's not like I was going to get a car. And so for some of you, a license meant freedom, you know, and that symbolized something big for you. That symbolized no freedom at all for me. There was no chance that me having a license would represent any, like, greater extent of tangible freedom in my life to do what I wanted to do. So I wasn't super interested in it. Um, my dad, though, knew that this anniversary trip was coming up, and he also knew that in order for us to survive a week on our own, all of us together, somebody had better have a way of legally driving people from one place to another. Um, and so my dad came to me and he said, son, you will have your license by this date. And every week that you don't have your license after that, you're going to owe me 20 bucks. Now, me not knowing anything about this anniversary trip was like, wow, dad's really, man, that was, that, was, that was a lot, but I did it. I didn't want to owe dad 20 bucks every week, and I was like, man, what's the big deal? You know, what's the rush? Um, I later on found out that I had to get my license by that date because they were leaving, you know, right after that, and so there was no wiggle room. It was like, here's the deadline. You will have your license by this point. Now, I say all that to make the point that my parents booked that anniversary trip. That was a done deal. They were going, and I needed to have my license. How did he know that I would have my license? Because he knew that that warning would work. I was his son. He knew me well enough to know how to get to me. And friends, God has a guaranteed passage of safety for you to glory. How does he know that your faith will endure to the end? Because he gives you the encouragements and the warnings that will always sustain and preserve the faith of his children to the very end. God infallibly uses the means of his word as the very method by which he preserves our faith through encouragement and warning. But there's a second means that God uses to preserve our faith to the end, and that is speaking the truth in love in your own local church. You see, the word of God is the primary means that God uses to preserve our faith. But did you know that you play a role in this as well? Look at verse number 13 again. 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that with the result that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, did you know that when you speak the word of God lovingly and accurately to fellow Christians, you're becoming an instrument that God 
uses to preserve their faith and bring them to eternal glory? In this passage, the the writer intends that the warnings he's just given for the preservation of the souls of the hearers would be the very warnings taken up on the lips of the readers and in turn regurgitated to each other on a regular basis. The application here is as an essential an aspect of the means of preservation as the reading of God and the preaching of God's word. Friends, you play a vital role in how God sovereignly intends to bring our church family finally home to glory. Did you know that it's through loving spiritual fellowship of the local church that God uses as his voice to speak his life-giving words to his dear children? So let's ask the question, brothers and sisters, are you availing yourself regularly of the perseverance-producing fellowship of the church? When you gather with the saints, do you make it a priority to lovingly speak truth from God's word into the lives of fellow believers? This is a means that God uses for the preservation of our faith, and we must not neglect it. Friends, I would encourage you, uh, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, not as much as I would have liked, but I would encourage you with this thought. The relationships that we have with each other here at community, the core of them ought to be spiritual fellowship. Previous generations were much better at this than we are. Um, They called it in Bunyan's day, uh, uh, spiritual discourse. And what that meant very simply was that these Christians, these generations of Christians, worked very hard to develop the skill of talking about God's word with God's people. We find it awkward and invasive, but that's not the biblical picture of our fellowship with each other. So let me give you just maybe one or two really just quick applications or suggestions from this. Number one, make it a goal that every single Sunday you have a spiritual conversation with somebody in your church family. Whether it's you have a conversation about what you mutually are learning in your time in the word whether it's a question about some aspect of spiritual discernment or wisdom, whether it's you immediately after the the sermon that you've just heard, rehearsing together the truths that stuck out to you and, and seeing where we can pray for each other in regards to how we can make better use of the truths that were preached to us. Get to know each other spiritually because it's not just a good Christian thing to do. It's actually one of the means that God uses to preserve our faith. Some of you are here and you feel very ashamed of the fact that you struggle to be a witness at work and speak of the gospel in Christ with joy and confidence and boldness in the community, at sports practices or in your workplace. And if that's true of you, can I just encourage you to practice speaking of Christ here among your fellow believers here? That if you're really struggling, but you want to be more evangelistic, but you struggle with how to do that, why don't you work on getting to a place where speaking about Christ with believers is a comfortable and normal and joyful thing. And that would be a good step for you to take on your way to what God would have you to do as an instrument for grace in that way. One takeaway, spiritual conversations take words about spiritual progress and the Bible, and they make them the core of your conversation. 
If you want to really study what this could look like in a myriad of brainstorming ideas, just go read Pilgrim's Progress because like half the book is Christian having spiritual conversations with people. I actually found myself getting lots of ideas about types of things I can talk about spiritually with other believers just by reading that book. Maybe go read that book with a friend and maybe try to have a similar conversation to the one you read within, you know, between meeting times. That would be a good way to do it. But as we close and uh, just sum up what we've heard from God's word, from all these truths in this passage, we learn that believers must carefully and continually set their faith in Christ for final salvation. And that believers will persevere by means of God's own word, which is like a hammer that strikes at the chisel of our faith to produce the beautiful sculpture of our salvation, which brings glory to God for all of eternity. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these sober realities and warnings from your word. Lord, by your grace, may we take them seriously, recognizing that it is finally and truly your power that preserves us, and yet you have called us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Lord, would you give us grace to believe the scriptures, understand them, and obey them? And Would you bless our spiritual fellowship, that it would grow and deepen? that you would use that as a means to bring many sons to glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.